This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, political scientist Deborah Stone argues that numbers aren't objective and explains the numerous ways that numbers impact our lives daily. She's interviewed by data scientist and author Kathy O'Neill. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Kathy. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Um, I enjoyed your book. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start this interview by talking a little bit about you. I'd like to know a little bit more about you, but I'd also like the audience to hear the story, which um, honestly, frankly, like really offended me, which is in your introduction. Um, you got a note from a professor, I believe, claiming that you, you'd never be a political scientist. Can you say a little <laughs> bit about that? <laughs> well, I, I put that in the book because uh, when I was in college, I struggled with what I wanted to major in, like most kids do in college. And I was really torn between going into science and going into humanities or social science. And, um, uh, and um, I finally decided on social science uh, um, because I found those questions much more interesting and engaging. And and urgent uh, for me. I remember my first political science course, we read all the great political philosophers from Plato on up and, um, and they were all asking the question, what is justice? What is good government? How can you organize government and organize society to make uh, life better for people and particularly to make justice? Uh, so uh, I ended up, um, Actually, uh, before I had decided to become a political science major, I took this course, and um, and uh, and I already had kind of uh, uh, a lack of confidence in my skills as a as a humanist or a social scientist because I didn't get very good grades in those courses, but I got really good grades in my science and math courses, so it was kind of a dilemma. So then I took this political science course, and um, I don't even remember what the paper was on. You, you never, you know, you never remember that stuff. You only remember the grade or the nasty comments. And so the professor wrote, "This is a credible effort, but you'll never be a political scientist." Um, so I mean, like I, I actually really, it really resonates that story because I, I remember myself being a, you know, I became a mathematician, but like one of the one of the reasons, I guess I had, it was just like a, a similar dilemma, a slightly different reaction. One of um, the things I realized in middle school, I believe, we were being ta taught about manifest destiny. As if, as if it was like a thing that we should believe, you know? And I just remember thinking, well, from the perspective of the Native Americans that we slaughtered on the way across the country, you know, this is not at all. A, a reasonable theory, you know, and I just remember being like, well, at least in geometry, which I was taking at the time, like when I proved something, I know I've proved something, I can be comfortable with that. Um, so I, I felt the discomfort somehow overwhelmed my interest, but of course my interest was there. And somehow for you, I think it was the opposite. Would you agree? Yeah, um, I, I think that's right. Um, and also I had, I had a discomfort moment with numbers, which is probably what led to this book. I mean, it's, this is an itch I've been scratching for a long time. When I took my first economics course, uh, 
I remember the professor put up all these graphs on the board of supply and demand curves and said what a beautiful model the market was because if you just believe that everybody, he didn't say believe, but he said people um, buy things depending on the price and, and suppliers sell things. And, um, and at the point where a buy, the price is right, a buyer wants to buy and the seller wants to sell and the market is perfect. It makes everybody happy. And I raised my hand and I said, but price isn't the only thing that people think about when they decide whether to buy something or what they want to buy. And the professor said, oh, I know that's true. But if we make this uh, a simplification, um, we can really get some powerful conclusions by stripping away all the extraneous stuff. And that just bugged the heck out of me. I, I just Well, you know, and, and thank you for that story. And by the way, I, I agree with you. That's why when I took economics in college, I was like, this is not mathematical enough. It's for exactly the same reason. Like, it's just too contextual or too many assumptions. I don't believe the assumptions. Like, if it were pure mathematics, which is what I was interested in at the time, that's fine. Because you agree that you've stripped away assumptions. You agree that you have, like, a stripped down concept of what you may assume and like then you can use logical inference. But but what you just said really does bring me to my first actual sort of bookish question, which is like, I have, since I read your book, like been thinking through a lot, um, one of your very first points, which is the idea that when we count things, I'm almost gonna repeat what you just said, like when we count things, we have to classify them. We have to strip them of context. Um, and that's something that is a deeply human thing. It's something we teach our children to do. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that concept of classification and like as a, a number, as a metaphor. So that is, um, you know, that is the key point of, of my book. And um, I think that we're taught in school that, uh, and even by our parents or whoever teaches us to count, that there's a right answer and that you just, you're tagging a number word, like one, two, three, or uno, dos, tres. You're just tagging number words onto things. But in fact, you have to decide what belongs in the group of things you're counting. So say a parent puts down um, a bunch of oranges and apples in front of a kid and says, count the apples. The kid has to know how to tell an apple from an orange. And they have to be taught those rules beforehand, before they can start to count. So, um, and that's a simple one. You know, I think it's easy to teach kids how to tell an apple from an orange, right? But um, go to something more, um, more interesting, like counting ballots in an election. Somebody has to decide, well, you're counting votes. That's what we really want to do is count votes for different candidates. But somebody's making a decision before they even count the votes. What's a valid ballot? Is this, does this ballot meet the, if it's a mail-in ballot, does it meet the tests? You know, you, did you sign in all the right places or whatever? Uh, and somebody's deciding who's a voter, who, who even gets to cast the ballot? So those classification decisions, who's in and who's out, which ballots are in and which are out, those get made before anybody starts to tally up the number of votes on, on, the, on the ballot. So, uh, so yeah, that's, and yeah. If you don't mind me dwelling on this for a few minutes, like 
it's, it's a very profound point. Um, you know, we think of our, like I have three children, we think of teaching our children to count as a way of like, we think it's an exercise in having them figure out that two comes after one or three comes after two and four comes after three, um, et cetera. But what, your, but what your book has done is made me rethink that, that in fact, I have, that's the easy part, right? The hard part is the invisible part where we're just asking them to categorize in the first place. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. it reminds me of one of my favorite conundrums that I came up with as a teenager was like, when you, when you say hi to a piece of broccoli, is it the, the stock, the entire stock that says hi back, or is it those little, little florets at the end of broccoli that say, says hi back? I know that's a ridiculous example, but it, it is, it, it's like, that's the kind of same thing. You're like, what is an individual atom of this, of nature in this context? And that's what we're always asking our, our, our sons and daughters to do is decide what belongs and what doesn't belong in this category. And it's very, very important. Another example it came up with since reading your book, because I've been, again, thinking about this a lot is, um, you know, for taxes, like my friend is a tax, is an accountant, he does taxes. And he think, and for, from his perspective, it's like, people think that, um, that the tax, the tax calculation is hard, but of course, the tax calculation is really, really easy once you've decided what counts as income, right? Everything <laughs> This doesn't count or this, you know, you can get rid of this and how to sort of admit your income. Once you have the income number, like the tax calculation is really easy, right? right. So all yeah. about what belongs and what doesn't belong. It's, that's the negotiation we're constantly doing under the covers. And I think it's a really important, it's an important point. Do you want to come up with, do you want to supply a couple more examples? For yeah, I do. I do. That's great. Um, so, you know, I first, I, I kind of came to this insight when I was reading Dr. Seuss, One Fish, Two Fish, I was, I wanted to say, I knew, I've, I've been thinking about these number stuff, number stuff for a long time. And I thought, I want to go back and see how kids learn to count. Um, what's that moment when you get the insight about quantity? And in One Fish, I thought it was a counting book. I remembered it as a counting book. It isn't, it turns out. It starts out one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, old fish, new fish, black fish, blue fish. And it goes on and on with different kinds of fish and never gets past two. And then there's another verse that says, high fish, low fish, slow fish, fast fish, slow fish. Not one of them is like another. Don't ask us why, go ask your mother. And then I thought, well, if not one is like another, how do you know that they're all fish? How do you count them all as fish? How do we know if so? And, and that made me realize that's the problem of life. Everything is unique, right? And so um, if it's only humans, we need to group things in order to make sense of our world and to, um, and to think about things. And when you think about it, language does the same thing. When we teach kids words, we teach them um, for example, the word for nose, and we teach them by pointing to my nose, mom, daddy's nose, 
doggy's nose, you have a new puppy, I don't know, you like, and doggy's nose and my nose don't look anything alike, and baby's nose doesn't look a whole lot like my nose, but, but they have certain similarities that are meaningful to us adults, and so we lump them all under one word. So I really think numbers and language, numbers are just another kind of language for categorizing things. Uh, when you great. And that really is a great segue to my next series of questions, which is like, numbers are just a language, like just merely. <laughs> but they also have this unbelievable power. And you talk about that quite brilliantly. Um, with respect to scoring systems and like with respect, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, the system whereby people are asked to uh, measure their own pain in, in the medical situations. Yeah. <clears throat> so talk a bit about that and what, and what does it even mean to measure one's pain on a scale of one to 10? Yeah. So um, if you ever had anything you know wrong with you that causes pain, some doctor or nurse will ask you on a scale from one to ten, how bad is it? And sometimes they'll say one is hardly noticeable and ten is just off the charts. I can't stand it anymore. I want to jump out a window. Uh, and um, most people are completely baffled by this question. We don't think of our pain. We experience it in a lot of different ways, but we don't experience it like a thermometer, like with numbers. So um, what I find really interesting about that is I've asked lots of friends about the pain scale when I was uh, writing this book and um, everybody says they, uh, they find it really difficult to put their pain in a number, to put a number on their pain. Uh, and yet the medical system keeps using it. And I think it has, um, it has some benefit. Pain is uncommunicable. No one else can feel your pain. And that's, um, uh, you know, it's just one of those experiences that is yours and yours alone. And, um, and it's really impossible to communicate. So, um, Trying to do that with a number is at least a start. There's someone, uh, a Canadian doctor named Ronald Melzack, who came up with, a, I think, a much better way of asking people to, of kind of trying to measure or get a handle on people's pain. It, it's a system of words. And he, he just listened to people talk about their pain, and he came up with about 100 different words to characterize pain. And... Most of the medical professionals I've talked to say that they think the word system is much more helpful in allowing patients to express what they feel and in allowing helping uh, clinicians understand what they feel. And there's even some words apparently that are just bingo words that um, a person says them and the clinician knows, oh, that's a stomach ulcer. I don't, I'm just making that up, making up that example. But uh, so um, even though I think the pain, um, the pain scale is very problematic and it's very frustrating for people. It's one big advantage is that it's a language. It allows people to communicate a little bit. And so if you if you say, well, my pain was a 
10 yesterday, but it's only a seven now, you're communicating that you feel a little that much better. Or, and vice versa, if, if a doctor's given you some pain meds and then you say that you're, uh, you know, you're still a 10, <laughs> they know to try something else. So it becomes a language of communication and it's better than nothing, but it's not a very good one. Yeah, I mean, one of the, uh, there's a couple of fascinating details to you uh, in that last part of that section about the pain numbers. And the first one was that um, in spite of how good it, it how well it, the, the more contextual nuanced word language for pain works, like billing companies, insurance companies prefer the numbers, uh, essentially, I think, because um, they're, they just want to know how much they can charge, <laughs> probably billing issues, or maybe they, um, they you, you seem to imply that there was a rule that if your pain was above a six, you should be treated for it. Um, that like the doctor's responsibility is to just to give you a pain med. Um, so that's, that's really interesting that like, in some sense, it becomes more, once it's quantified, it somehow becomes more objective from the perspective of the insurance agency. But the, the flip side of that, which I found even more interesting, and I'd like you to discuss a little bit, is the extent to which um, the patients themselves learned that rule and asserted control over their own treatment by deciding what to say when asked, how what, what's your pain level? Could you talk a little bit about that flip of asserting control of the patients to the system? So, um... I learned from a friend who has cancer and is on some pretty serious pain meds that um, uh, she said to me, uh, they don't want you to be above a five. And I scratched my head. What does that mean? <laughs> they don't want you to be. Um, does that mean they try to tell you not to say above a five? And she said, no, if it's, you're above a five, that means they're going to want to do something about it. They want to give, want to give you meds. So then, um, I um, I talked to more people, and what people told me is that they they know it's kind of a cat and mouse game that played through this, these numbers. Like you put down your five, and then the other side puts down whatever you know their their answer is or whatever their their next card is. So um, people who are um, experiencing a lot of pain often make a trade off themselves. To, uh, because pain meds make you really a zombie is a word people usually use. They really mess with your head and you can't think clearly. They make you tired. Um, so people who have a lot of pain sometimes think, I don't want to just be doped up on opioids. And so uh, several of my friends told me that they learned that when... They've used learned to use the scale to control what the what the nurse or the doctor would do. If they didn't want more pain meds, they'd say a low number. And if they wanted more, it's a higher higher number. I mean, one of the things I learned from the book I wrote, Weapons of Math Destruction, was just how much a scoring system exerted in terms of power and in terms of this like authority. That, uh, okay. that, you know, like if I, you know, if you're talking about a public school teacher, which your book also discusses, getting their value added model score, um, so many of the teachers in that system 
like their natural reaction was to trust the number because it was a score. And we're so used to trusting our scores. We have our FICO score, we have our weight, we have our IQ score. We're, we're expected to trust these things. Um, and the trust isn't always deserved. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to see to see um, in, in that example that you just gave of the pain meds, to see like the, 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 um, the, the patient, in other words, the target of these scores to actually taking control, because it's so rare. Usually those scores are power over, those, over the targets of the scores. And that's a, a rare case where the targets take back the power. But do you want to talk a little bit about um, the teachers and the and their, their scoring system around the teachers? Yeah, sure. Let, and let's talk about power first. <laughs> so, sure. Let's talk um, about power. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the, just to go back to the pain thing, the reason why the patients can take control are because they're the ones scoring themselves. Yes. Uh, so, and that's unusual. In that most unusual. situations, somebody else is scoring you. And we all grow up in school being scored all the time, being given grades. So we're used to being the the weekend of a scoring system. That's right. Subject to somebody else's power. And unfortunately, um, it, kids learn very early on that the teacher is right or the grade is right. And they a grade will make them doubt themselves. I certainly doubted myself when I was told I got a B and I would never be a political scientist. You did. Um, but, and I don't know why, I, it's a long story why I came around to it. But um, so, um, yeah, numbers have this aura in our culture of being objective. Um, and that there's a, you know, a lot of um, slogans nowadays to say, um, we want to make evidence-based decisions. We want to make data-based decisions. We want our, our decisions to be driven by research, driven by facts. And what people mean nowadays by facts, evidence, data, research is numbers. Uh, they, they think that those are uh, objective and words are squishy and subject to interpretation, which they are. At the point of my book is that numbers are subject to interpretation too. <laughs> so, um, so um, yeah, um, people use scoring systems and all kinds of organizations to uh, to make decisions that are going to affect other people's lives, whether to hire them and fire them, promote them, give them a pay raise you talk about in your book, give them insurance, uh, how much to charge them for their insurance, whether to give them a bank loan. Uh, and uh, so um, the example that I think we were both fascinates us about, uh, fascinates both of us about teachers is that um, people uh, in education bureaucracies wanted to uh, make sure that teachers were uh, qualified and, and producing results. So they came up with a way to measure results, which was uh, testing students on reading and math, pretty much those two subjects. And then um, when students spend a year in, in a teacher's classroom and they do well on those tests, the result is attributed to the quality of the teacher. See, if, uh, if her students do well, so um, 
they that's kind of a simple model of how it works, but they developed uh, fancy formulas to uh, to um, try to sort out exactly how much of a student's test score was due to the teacher's teaching and how much was due to extraneous factors, like what the kid had learned the year before and how good the teacher in the previous grade was. Uh, and, and how also, well they did and how well they did in the past, you know. The way I, I say it is the teacher was given credit if you did better than expected, if the students did better than expected. But that yeah. expected concept was itself a mathematical model. Yeah. So then, uh, uh, um, in addition to scoring people, uh, scoring teachers, uh, the um, these systems also either rewarded or penalized them on the basis of their score. Yeah. Either that they could get fired, whole schools would be shut down or taken over by emergency managers or whatever, uh, put in receivership, um, uh, and uh, school budgets would be determined by how well the uh, how well these teachers were performing. Um, so it could be life and death consequences, not literally, but job losing consequences for, uh, for teachers to get a bad score. And um, it's the combination of the scoring system and the attachment of rewards and penalties on the yes. basement of scores that leads to these consequences. Yes. Uh, the scores, what I um, talk about in the book is that we, all of us hope that education does so much more than teach people how to add and subtract and, um, and um, pass a reading comprehension test or, yeah, right. uh, or, or know the right grammar rules. And so we really hope, for my money, a, a really good teacher is one who instills curiosity in the students and instills excitement about learning and confidence that they can learn. So make them want to learn, give them mm -hmm. confidence that they can and, um, and uh, boost them. And so, um, and encourage their imagination and nurture their creativity. Those are the, those are the things I've had. Sure, I want my kids, I don't have kids, but I want my kids to learn how to count. We all right, right. And I want them to learn how to read and write but I want them to do so much more than that. And I want education to do that. And, um, and the problem is these, um, these formulas for um, how much value a teacher adds to a student's uh, knowledge are really so narrowly defined. As they include only these, these narrow parts of education that are such a small part of it. Yes, I often say uh, that this is a, like the idea of assessing a teacher with test scores is, is easily seen as an insufficient concept with a pure thought experiment. We didn't have to go through this 12-year uh, experiment torturing teachers, but I guess we did do that. Um, I want to move back to a few examples you have of like what gets counted, what doesn't get counted. Um, and I have three examples here, but I want you to choose one. Um, the central, the violence against women. What is counted uh, for when, it, when we're talking about violence against women? Uh, and I'm, I'm partly just saying all three examples because I want people to 
to realize that this book has wonderful examples. Um, the, G the GDP, uh, what is counted as product production, as, as good news for the nation or for other nations? Um, and of course, uh, Madison's, um, as a Virginia slaveholder, his calculation of, of what gets counted as, as, a, as a human with rights. Um, so take one of those uh, that you'd like to go through about it to sort of lay down that point very strongly that it's, it's really not about the counting. The counting is the easy part. It's about what counts, what gets categorized appropriately into so that we can count it later. Okay. Okay. It's hard to choose, but I'll start, I'll start with the gender violence because I think we can come back to uh, others in, um, in other contexts. But so um, uh, the UN wanted to develop an, a, a way to measure gender violence in different countries and um, had a whole bunch of uh, committee meetings, invited people from different countries. And, um, and what they wanted to do was set up some indicators. So say, what counts as violence? Um, is it rape? Is it murder? Of course, <laughs> those things. Is it um, beating up somebody? Um, is it kicking somebody? And so they got um, some people, for people, women who are um, uh, from, from uh, North America and Europe had a list of activities or actions that, that they would count as gender, as violence. And they would um, ultimately, they'd go around and they'd ask, they'd do surveys in different countries and ask people, have you experienced this or that? So there was um, rape and beating and uh, uh, kicking and so on were the things that the Northern um, uh, 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 and Western people came up with. Then there were some Bangladeshi women at one of the meetings and they said, you know, we have different kinds of violence in our country, throwing acid in your face, burning, setting you on fire, dropping you from a high place, sticking needles under your fingernail, smashing your hand. Those are things we think are violence. They also said um, it was psychological violence to take another wife, take a second wife or to berate and punish a woman for not giving birth to a male child. Those were things they considered gender violence. And um, the committee that ultimately designed the, uh, the survey with all the indicators didn't include any of those things that the Bangladeshi women had brought up. So um, there you have a case where it's a question of who's in the room. We come back to power, really. So who's in the room when these decisions are getting made? What counts as violence? And Bangladeshi women were in the room, but they weren't strong enough to get their, um, their definitions of violence or experiences of violence uh, counted as examples of violence. So when the survey gets done, that won't be done. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, it is really about power, especially the three-fifths rule. Um, but I mean, we don't have time for all of the fascinating questions I have, so I'm going to move ahead. I'd like you to, because I am always looking for positive stories about about numbers and power, I want, I want you to talk about numbers as, as witnesses in the context of Flint, Michigan, if you would. Okay, great. I like there that. A lot of, yeah. Like and I just, yeah, but before I talk about that, I just want to say that 
a lot of people, when they first hear my message, they worry that I'm telling people never trust the number. Numbers are no good. We should not count. That is not my message at all. I think numbers can be extremely helpful, and I have lots of examples of it in the book of yes. where they are. So, um, so the Flint, Michigan water crisis is one of them, where um, uh, the city of Flint switched its source of water um, from uh, the Detroit uh, Detroit reservoir to, to um, the Flint River, I think it was called, and shortly after that people started noticing that uh, people in Flint, that their water smelled and tasted funny. And they started having some pretty serious problems. Their hair was falling out, skin rashes. Uh, and um, everybody knows, I think that it turned out there was a lot of lead in the water and a lot of children um, had lead poisoning because of drinking this water. Well, uh, numbers were really critical to finding out this, and what the cause of the problem was. Uh, it, it turned out that the EPA, Environmental Protection uh, Agency, has standards for um, uh, what are safe levels of lead in water. And there shouldn't be lead in water. And um, the Clean Water Act said um, that we, we could, uh, shouldn't be, no one should be using lead pipes anymore. That was 1986. But old pipes were grandfathered in. Uh, and um, Flint, Michigan had a lot of old housing stock with old pipes. Uh, and then um, the CDC uses numbers to say how much is a safe level of blood in children, in anybody's blood. You can do a blood test and count particles of blood. Um, and the CDC... Particles, says, of, particles, uh, of, particles blood. of lead. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, the CDC says no level is safe, but um, above a certain level, we should be concerned. Above five, uh, we should be concerned, and uh, uh, um, but but we don't need to treat until we're above forty-five, or a person is above forty-five. So what happened is the citizens of Flint invited a water engineer to um, come in and test their water, and he figured out right away that. It was, um, there was probably lead in the water because of corrosion from old pipes. And uh, so um, he tested the water and sure enough, there were very high levels. Um, by the way, the uh, Michigan uh, Department of Environmental Affairs or whatever it's called had tested the water, but um, claimed that there was, uh, it was safe, um, that there was no lead in it. And the way they tested it, it turned out, and this water engineer discovered, was they told residents or they sent their inspectors in and they flushed, they let the water run for 30 minutes. So they flushed all the lead particles out of the pipe. So, of course, uh, they got low readings. But this water engineer came in and he said, he did his own test and he got numbers that were very, very high. And then a doctor uh, who was a pediatrician, was hearing concerns from the mothers of her patients. And she had access to all the blood level, blood lead testing. She worked in the hospital where it was done. And she compared the blood levels with um, in kids before the switch to the new system of water to uh, after. And sure enough, um, 
the levels went up dramatically. So those two sets of numbers put together with a causal story that the water engineer made very convincing. Lead pipes corrode, you know, and send particles into the water, which gets into people's blood. Um, those two sets of numbers became the witnesses to condemn the city for its for its change and its lack of doing anything about about the water, the lead problem. I still feel like the story, though, because there's so it's so often the case that you do find out that the numbers were on your side and yet you lost, <laughs> you know, like there must have been. And I think I think the answer is I think there was good media coverage of this. I think I even heard that pediatrician be interviewed on NPR like somehow those the, those real numbers like the non non faked water lead water levels they were somehow brought to the surface i mean the power somehow was overcome do you know how i think two two things and it's it's pretty typical um, <clears throat> there were a few citizens i think one mom in particular who just knew not to trust the numbers. And she insisted on, um, uh, she brought water samples into government agencies and so on. But I think she, I forget if she contacted the water engineer, but there were, then the second, so citizen advocacy was one thing. And she yeah. eventually got lots of moms to uh, test their, their water right. with the kits that the water engineer provided. Um, the second ingredient for overcoming power is that these um, citizens had allies who were in agencies, in, in, in government or ex in science, uh, you know, science experts like the water engineer and the doctor. Um, so they became passionate about the problem and they uh, worked with the, uh, the citizens, the patients, the homeowners and so on. That's good. That's good. Because, of course, numbers, even when they're right, they don't always emerge victorious. Can you tell me a little bit about, can you tell the audience a little bit about what you call the Fitbit effect? Because I am skeptical. So I want you to explain it, and then I'm going to ask you some, some pushy questions, if you don't mind. Okay, sure. Uh, when a Fitbit is that little device that you wear on your wrist, and it, um, uh, it counts your steps. And people uh, who wear Fitbits try to... Uh, make themselves exercise more by counting their steps and they try to reach goals. And the interesting thing about it is that everyone I know who has a Fitbit uh, says that they walk more because the Fitbit is counting them. It, it gooses them to take, to, to walk a little bit longer than they otherwise would or climb up some steps if they haven't reached their 10,000 step goal for the day. So, um, and I use that as a metaphor for the for the this phenomenon that when we uh, when you count something, especially when you count yourself, you uh, and you want to look good on the measure, uh, then you will change your behavior to get a good count to get a good number. So, um, uh, so that's the Fitbit effect, and. Okay, yeah. here's, here's why I'm going to push back on it. And it, I hope you appreciate my point. Um, I don't disagree with the fact that people like to look good. And people, if there's an impactful 
um, metric that's measuring them, they will change their behavior in order to make their metric look good. And that's certainly well understood. I write about that myself in my book, Weapons of Mass Destruction, when I talk about colleges trying to gain the US News and World Report college ranking model. That's certainly a, a very, very important factor in how college administrators act. But with respect to Fitbit specifically, I've done some research on Fitbit and I have found that almost all Fitbit users throw away their Fitbits after a couple of months or at least completely ignore them. So I would say one of the things that's interesting that has happened is that you are listening to the people who still not only wear their Fitbits, but still talk about their Fitbits, which is like a very, very narrow group of people, if you don't mind me saying. Like the real Fitbit effect is that Fitbits are really annoying and most people ignore them. I think that's like the... You know what I mean? The overwhelming story about Fitbits is that they don't actually cause people to change their behavior, but there are a few people for whom like the Fitbit is what they really want. And for them, it's the story is different. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I think uh, it's a fair enough point. And, and, you know, it's uh, clearly, you know, people, uh, only people who are motivated to change their behavior or they're stepping, you know, get a Fitbit and, and wear it. And once they're no longer motivated, they'll change. But I think, you know, w- what I'm saying, it still holds for the short term. Maybe it doesn't change people's behavior for the long term, but at the moment or during that time, maybe a couple of months when they're infatuated with their new Fitbit and, you know, gung-ho to just, just as people, you know, they start a diet and they're gung-ho and they probably do lose some weight at first, but um, maybe they don't stay on it, you know, so. Um, I mean, diet is of course the ultimate example of this, um, but, you know, Fitbit is like, and for that matter, diets, like there's one thing about having some people self-select to buy them because they're more likely to be the super users of Fitbit. But even most people who buy Fitbits don't use them. But then there's been experiments where because Fitbit super users look so good on Fitbit, like uh, health programs will will buy Fitbits for everyone on their on their health policy. And guess what? Those people don't even never even wanted a Fitbit to begin with. They're not fascinated with them. They don't ever use them. And it's like a complete disaster. So I'm just making the point that it's like very self-selected small small slice of humans where that effect actually happens. But let's let's not dwell on that point. Let me, as a metaphor, it is perfectly reasonable. Can you talk a little bit about um, polling and racist polling and the Fitbit effect? Okay. So there are, um, social scientists have really tried to understand uh, racist attitudes and racist thinking. And um, they do that by asking people survey questions. And um, uh, so some of the questions, when I started looking into this, just appalled me that that anyone could even ask these questions. Uh, One of them is, uh, on a scale from one to ten, uh, sorry, one to seven, uh, where one is lazy and seven is how hardworking, where do you think blacks fall? Uh, the same thing on intelligence, the same thing on uh, uh, violence, uh, for example. Uh, <clears throat> and um, I think the the survey questions like these and lots of other survey questions do you think immigrants are generally good for the country or bad for the country uh it's kind of a ridiculous question when you think about it 
So what those questions do, they have, I think, an implicit lesson, which is stereotyping is legitimate. You can decide that every member of a racial group is um, some degree of laziness or you know, hardworking or whatever. And that's a legitimate way to think. That's what the question implies. There's a legitimate way to think. And I think it reinforces for people that race is a real thing and um, it's a real category and that, uh, and that people can be categorized easily into, um, into black or white. And it reinforces for people that uh, that they can make judgments about a whole group and that political leaders who are waiting to hear their political opinions uh, want to know how people stereotype. So I, I think that's, it, it's the self-reinforcing effect that I liken to the, you know, to the Fitbit. Is it, is it connected to this idea that you want to look good for this, the poll takers? Uh, yeah, some, so um, there's a lot of um, work in survey research where we, so people, people um, it's called the social desirability effect. People want to give a desirable answer. They want to appear smart. They want to appear uh, uh, not prejudiced. And what's amazing to in the racism research is that plenty of people are quite willing to express prejudice. Uh, but um, but in general, that's a, 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 I think a huge problem with survey research is that people uh, sometimes these are done face to face, sometimes they're done as telephone interviews. But people want to sound um, sound good to someone interviewing them, and I think half the time people don't uh, know what a question means, they or they don't even they don't understand it but they give an answer just so that they won't sound dumb. Uh, I mean, there's like a lot of late night, uh, you know, TV talk shows that, that make, that use that against people by interviewing them and about absolute um, non like garbage questions and they get people to answer them quite seriously. Um, I'd like to talk about the census and, and the category of Hispanics because I found that to be a fascinating story in this section of the book. Um, and also I think related to this, uh, this Fitbit effect, if you don't mind mentioning that. Sure. Uh, the census um, uh, first started asking a question about, is this, is this person Hispanic in 1980? Uh, before about 1970, the term Hispanic wasn't even in much use in the United States. People, there were a lot of people from uh, who, whose uh, origins were in Spanish-speaking countries, particularly Mexico, Cuba, Puerto Rico. They lived together and tended to cluster together in certain areas of the United States. And they didn't think of themselves as Hispanic. They thought of themselves as Cuban or Puerto Rican or Mexican. But then with the, in the late 60s and, um, and 70s, then when after the Civil Rights Act and Equal Opportunity Act, um, the government wanted to get racial and ethnic classifications in order to make sure that it could enforce equal treatment uh, and equal voting, for example. So uh, um, it started, it wanted to collect data 
on that. And, um, and so um, the Census Bureau wanted to have a Hispanic question, but they really didn't know, the leaders didn't know how they were going to get people to think of themselves as Hispanic. So they called a meeting of Hispanic uh, leaders of these different groups and um, asked them to promote the census to their uh, to their communities and to encourage people to identify as Hispanic. And the leaders were um, all in favor of that because at that point they understood that there would be um, benefits to be had from having big numbers. Um, you, you maybe would get more seats in Congress if more people were counted in the areas where they live and you'd get more federal aid to cities and places where um, where Hispanic people live. So um, again, this was a, a, this measuring instrument. The census created the category, put the question out there, then quite actively recruited people to um, encourage people to answer the question yes, to answer it at all and to answer it yes. So it was, um, an, uh, it was an interactive kind of uh, feedback effect where the category was there and people put themselves into it. Yeah, what I like about that story, and first of all, I, I didn't know that Hispanic was a new concept and that like the census by, by taking on that category actually had an effect on people's self-regard and self-image uh, as an identity, which is super interesting. But it also reminds me, going back to that earlier discussion we had about like people choosing the pain number that would give them the treatment they want, that this is a, a, another example of somehow like the targets of the counting, the census targets, the people um, asserting control over their own, uh, you know, their own agency um, by, by filling out their own form. And sometimes they were, again, uh, the masters of their own destiny by deciding, by, by naming their own ethnicity and their own race, which is a whole different discussion that you also have there about the race that they might choose. Yeah, that's, um, it's, it is, uh, I mean, thank you for making that analogy. I didn't see it quite in the same way, but it is very much um, true that people, um, the census gives people a chance to identify themselves with, say what their race is and what their ethnicity is and keeps adding more categories and more choices that you can have and you can write in some other race. One fascinating little factoid that I came up with is that some other race was the third largest category of race in the, in the 2010 census, <laughs> and which tells me that people don't like to accept. A lot of people don't like to accept the categories that they're offered. And that's, um, you know, it's a funny paradox of the census. That on the one hand, it says you can identify whatever race you say you are um, or you, you want to be or consider yourself. But on the other hand, the census people give categories, except for the some other race one. They provide some categories. Yeah. So, so the last um, the last topic I wanted to cover. I mean, I had a few more, but we're running out of time. Is this um, concept of the Allegheny County Child Services Hotline algorithm, which is a mouthful, but basically it's a um, child abuse hotline. 
And, you know, I've read Virginia Eubanks' wonderful book, Automating Inequality, which, which talked about it. And you talked about her work and, and some other stuff too. Um, you know, I have to say, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time talking to people who, who started that algorithm. And I do feel like, I'm not saying it's perfect. It's not perfect. In fact, the, the flaws are well laid out in your book. It's, you know, poor people are much more likely to be red lighted. Um, people of color are much more likely to be reported on. They're choosing the wrong prediction variable, which means that, you know, they're predicting, they're creating their own reality by saying, oh, these persons, this kid is more likely to be taken from their home, thus making that kid more likely to be taken from their home. There's all sorts of problems, but let me make the following plea. First of all, we've been talking about power for this hour. And, and a lot of the times I get frustrated because people are assuming authority and power in an unreasonable, unaccountable way. They're trying to get out, away with something basically. That happens a lot with, with numbers, with, you know, believe it, believe the scoring system because it's objective. And anyway, you have no right to appeal type things. But I would argue that in the case of social workers trying to deal with child abuse, like I would like them to have cover, a little bit of cover, if, if it works for them. I mean, and I say that as a friend of many social workers who got burned out because they have so much responsibility to make the right call on these like actual life and death matters. Do you see what I'm saying? Like in some sense, I would love it and I think we could all agree on this. I love it if they had a machine that could actually help them do their job. That and 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 if the machine was wrong, they could be like, the machine was wrong. Like usually when someone says the don't blame me, blame the machine, I'm like, that's a cop out, take responsibility. But in this case, I'm like, yeah, you did your best. <laughs> like it's really hard to make to make calls. Um and it really is. It's really hard. But the other, but I think the other and actually probably more more relevant plea I'll make for that that algorithm. And again, it's problematic. It is problematic. Is that it because it is um, because it is data? Because you are collecting data, it is auditable in a kind of very a very kind of. And this is the same th thing could be true for could be said for like Uber system of, of hiring, uh, managing by algorithms. Like these are systems that once they're made algorithmic, the good news is you could also make them work better because they are following rules. And so you can shift rules if the, the old rules aren't working very well. Uh, so that's my, that's my other plea. And, and I'll, the final thing I'll say is you talk a lot in the second, last part of the book about trolley problems and ethics. Um, and the thing that I keep on pointing out when I talk about the child abuse hotline is that there is a trolley problem embedded in that child abuse hotline and it's for children. So there's the false positives of an algorithm or of a process, the process itself of like how to decide whether to take a child from their home if they're at risk of abuse. You can be taking kids away from their home when they shouldn't be taken. You can be leaving kids in their home when they should be taken. You see what I mean? Those are two mistakes that a system could make and they're different mistakes and they're not equal. Like it's worse to leave a kid to abuse than it is to take a kid away from a family that's not really abusing them. 
And I'm not saying this is a good idea, but I'm saying this is worse. How I much? Said, yeah, let me jump in. So yeah. absolutely, I, you know, I, anything we can do to help people and yeah. help our leaders make better decisions is a good thing. Yes. And I think the, you know, the good thing about numbers is that, and trying to measure things, come up with yes. a system, whether it's an algorithm or just a simple list of indicators, um, is that it, the exercise of trying to measure things forces us to think about what we value, what we care about, what's important. Yes. Um, and and the the I think the point I want to leave people with is that we've got a system. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's still got problems, but it's better than um, winging it or you know whatever social workers had to do before. And, and as you said, anything that can take the burden off is good. But we shouldn't stop ever. We should always be trying to improve uh, those systems and uh, and those measurements. And I think if we uh, think of numbers as a language for talking about our values and what's important and who's being hurt and who's being helped, then um, we're using them wisely. If we think of them as this is the score, that's the end, I'm right, you're wrong, this is, you know, you'll never be a political scientist, <laughs> um, then um, uh, that is not a recipe for progress. I, Deborah, I could not agree more. And I'm uh, really glad that I had the chance to read this book. And I'm really glad I had the chance to have this discussion with you today. So thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.